Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Last week we began looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And we're actually going to be working through Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. And you'll see why uh, this morning. The title of the message was, Jesus has the final word. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3 and verse 6. And this is the word of the living God. And it happened that he, was, that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose, whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The Lord blessed the reading of his holy word. Over the span of about, I don't know, five to six years, a few years ago, I had the privilege of traveling um, to f- about 40, 50 times, flying on a plane and going to foreign countries. And with all of the rigors of traveling and all of that, one of the fun things that I enjoyed about flying was I would often uh, request to sit, uh, have a window seat um, so that I could um, be there for the takeoff, obviously be able to look out and be able to see that plane as it ascended and it went higher and higher to greater elevation. And one of the neat things about doing that uh, multiple times was that when you do that, you're able to look down and see the geography of the land. You're able to see the fact that um, the layout of the land, that there's division and that there's, there's orderliness to um, the place that we call home. There are, there are streets and blocks and then towns and communities and so forth. And as you're ascending in that, in that airplane, you're able to see and get the big picture, the panorama picture of, of where we live. And of course, even when you get back, now you're descending and you begin to see things get bigger and bigger and bigger. But you see that there's, there's rhyme and order and structure to the land. And I think similar to that, beloved, as far as geography, when we come into the Bible, it's very important for us to think the same way when we study the Word of God. It's very important for us to, to not lose sight of, of the forest when we're looking at the trees, if you will to get the bigger picture and to step back and be reminded regularly as we study even through the Gospel of Mark of the big picture of what was even the historical background when the Gospels open and when Jesus arrives on the scene. What is it that people were expecting at the time? What was the historical background? And if you remember, we've alluded to this a number of times, but there was a great Jewish um, messianic expectation during the time when Jesus arrives on the scene in the Gospels. What do we mean by that? 
That from the Old Testament, there were references that pointed to the fact that one day there would be a kingdom of God on earth. And the one that would usher in that kingdom would be a Messiah king who would come in fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And it would be that Messiah that would usher in that kingdom here on this earth. And so that was something that people expected. A time when God would completely rule over all of his enemies. And the Israelites would return to their glory days, if you will, where there were no other kingdoms that were over Israel. That was the expectation, a Jewish messianic expectation. And the Jews were expecting all of this. So, so that when you come into the Gospel of Mark, and you look back in chapter 1 and verse 14, what do we see Jesus preaching when he begins his public ministry? It says in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, that after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, notice, preaching the Gospel of God, the good news of God. And saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled or the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes calling people to recognize that the kingdom is here. And they would have known what he was alluding to there. That the kingdom of God was at hand. But if the kingdom of God was at hand, then that meant that the king had arrived, namely himself, the Messiah king. And so Jesus begins to proclaim this. And we see, of course, and then in chapter 1, verses 16 and 20, to 20, that he begins to call individuals to follow him. He begins to call people to repent and believe in him, who is the king, who is the Messiah. Follow me, he says in verse 17, and I will make you become fishers of men. And the first followers, disciples of Jesus, commit their lives to him. Now, obviously, they didn't fully understand all, everything about him, but there was simple faith and a commitment of faith of trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And so this kingdom begins to grow, in other words. A person at a time who turns from their sins and puts their trust in Jesus Christ, the King Messiah, this kingdom begins to grow one person at a time as they commit their lives to Jesus. But very quickly, as we've seen, haven't we? This kingdom is opposed. The kingdom of light is opposed by the kingdom of darkness. And we've seen this already in chapter 1. Multiple references to the fact that as Jesus is proclaiming this kingdom and Him having arrived, there is constant demonic activity. Demons were already present, right? But they are crying out and they recognize who is amongst them and they recognize the authority of the Son of God. In fact, one of them cries out in chapter 1, verse 24, Have you come to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so there are these demons because the kingdom of darkness understands who is amongst them. Jesus, beloved, had invaded a hostile territory. The kingdom of darkness. And then in chapter 2, if you notice with me, over and over, over we've seen that even the religious leaders, those who should have known better from a human perspective, the religious leaders, the scribes, the experts of the Pharisees, are the main people on the human level who are opposing Jesus. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 7, in the context of him um, um, he, uh, forgiving a paralyzed man and healing him, they ask in chapter 2, verse 7, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why? What's he doing? Look at chapter 2 and verse 16, 
When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Too wise already. Look at chapter 2 and verse 24. In the context of, of the question about Sabbath observance, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are your disciples breaking or violating the Sabbath? And we miss one back in chapter 2 and verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Four different times in in, in Mark chapter 2, Mark, as he's recording these narratives, he shows us that there is growing opposition against Jesus. Why? 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 And they're not asking because they want to learn. They're not asking because they really want a a genuine answer from our Lord. They're asking because that question is loaded with suspicion and doubt and hatred against our Lord. He is going against their particular religion of works, if you will. And so we see, beloved, over and over again that as Jesus uh, comes as the Messiah and he's proclaiming this gospel of God's kingdom, there is opposition from the kingdom of darkness And there were subsets of that kingdom of darkness, weren't there? The demonic realm. Obviously, even all of the physical sickness was ultimately ultimately the result of living in a fallen, broken world. And then you have the mini kingdom, if you will, of the religious leaders who had this apostate Judaism that was all about gaining favor with God and judging others according to works. That's really what it came down to. All of that, all of those were subsets of the kingdom of darkness. And that's why Jesus, even in, in the passage of when he is at the feast, um, he's saying, listen, what I bring is totally new. It's incompatible. It cannot be mixed with apostate Judaistic religion. We saw that a few weeks ago. It's totally and completely new. It is by grace through faith in him alone that salvation comes. And so we see the hostility here. And we see that as the conflicts come over and over again in these narratives, like a master surgeon, our Lord exposes the hearts of these religious leaders again and again, doesn't he? Exposing that they don't understand who he is, and they don't understand the nature of the kingdom that he brings. They were expecting a present political conqueror who would usher in total and complete dominion for Israel. But Mark, as we've seen, presents Jesus as this suffering servant who before he establishes a literal earthly kingdom, he is going to conquer through his death and resurrection that people might be able to be a part of that kingdom. How? By trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. That's how we might be able to be a part of that kingdom. And this is why Mark, as we've said, he wants to move us as quickly as possible to the cross, doesn't he? The first eight chapters of the book of Mark are focused upon who this Jesus is in every narrative. This is who Jesus is that makes, that qualifies him, chapters 9 of Mark through the end of the book, to go to the cross, to die for sinners. Mark wants us us to get there quickly. That's why he keeps using these words immediately. And these words that that, um, uh, imply progress and movement towards the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to get us uh, to. And so the first eight chapters of Mark, leading to the confession of Peter, in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following, Jesus explicitly asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
Remember Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now from that point on, Jesus begins to explicitly, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, to talk about the fact that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again explicitly. Now he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to the cross to die for sinners. That's what we see. So in these first eight chapters, that's what we're focusing upon. First and foremost, who is this Jesus? There's no greater point of application than that. We are confronted with the one who is the only hope of humanity, the God-man, the Messiah, the one, only one in whom we can put our trust that we might find forgiveness of sins and be made right with God is this one who is the Son of God who's going to go to the cross to die for sinners. But also, in each of these narratives, as Jesus reveals himself, he's addressing real people, right? And he's exposing in these people the very sins that keep them from believing that he is the only hope. And especially in chapter 2, he's addressing, the, he's going heads, if you will, with the self-righteous hypocrisy of apostate Judaism. These religious leaders who are about their works, and they keep asking these questions that expose the fact that they don't understand him, nor the nature of the kingdom that he brings. And so last week I told you, and we began to look at this, that as Jesus addresses these religious leaders, these, these Pharisees, I think we learn three principles here for how to avoid self-righteousness in our lives, that we might learn to trust in Jesus alone and show love to him and love to one another in a very genuine way. Think about this. These religious leaders, in their fixation with their man-made rules and their non-biblical interpretations, Right, such as fasting and the Sabbath and things that they had added to those things, failed to truly understand their responsibility to God and to other people. And they didn't trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so what did we learn last week, last week first and foremost? We learned that we need to live as people being guided by the principle of truth. The principle of truth. These religious leaders were beyond, had gone beyond the Mosaic law, beyond what stood written. They had added their own man-made rules and traditions and interpretations to God's good and perfect law. And what does our Lord Jesus do? do? He calls them back to Scripture. Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read in the time of David in 1 Samuel 21? How the priest Ahimelech then, during the days of Abiathar, the priest, how he, how the priest gave these men, met their need with the bread that was meant for to be a consecrated bread in the temple? Have you not read? Have you not read how the priests are exempted during the Sabbath? How these individuals actually work twice as hard to keep, to to serve in the temple during the Sabbath. That they are exempt because they are serving God and serving God's people. See, he's calling them back to check their rules and their traditions and their interpretations with what Scripture has to say. Now think about this, beloved. For them, it was their apostate Judaism that they needed to return and check with, with scripture. But today, what kinds of things do we have, as I mentioned last week? There are so many religions in a pluralistic society, so, there so many different belief systems, and all of those religions, no matter what religion you're talking about, no matter what system of thought, is all ultimately salvation by works. That's what it is. And so we have to shun that. Many of us are, are guided by our experiences, are guided by our opinions, are guided by our interpretations of what we believe the truth to be. Some of us are guided even by social media. We put our trust in politics and what the so-called experts of society tell us that we ought to believe. 
But ultimately, the question for us, especially as believers, is this. Are we guided by the truth? Are you guided by the principle of truth? What scripture has to say to us? Are you a person, according to Colossians 3.16, that you're allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly so that you truly know what God's word says about faith in all matters of practice? But it wasn't just that these Pharisees, especially the scribes of the Pharisees, were unaware of Scripture. I think they would have given you chapter and verse for just about everything. The problem, as we said last week, was even deeper, wasn't it? They missed the heart and the intent of God's Word. The problem went more further. Jesus later said in Matthew chapter 22 that the whole law was summarized in in this. It was an expression of love for God and love for fellow mankind. And so we talked about the principle of love, that we need to be people who who are driven and motivated and shaped by the principle of love. That the whole law to be obeyed was an expression of love for God and love for one another for our neighbor. What had these religious leaders done in Jesus' day? They had, they had built this fence around God's precious word. And what had been lost in the process were the weightier provisions of God's word. Mercy and compassion and justice. All of which were aspects of love, right? Don't you know, says our Lord, the Sabbath, verse 27, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus tells him, listen, the Sabbath ultimately was for the benefit of man, that man might be refreshed. And you have made it something different. So our Lord exposes this as well. They have lost sight of the intent of even the Sabbath, which was God's gracious provision for man's refreshment, his rest, his recuperation. It was for man's benefit. They had made the Sabbath, beloved, a burden with all of their added traditions and interpretations. It had become a burdensome thing. And isn't this what self-righteous legalism does, beloved? That's what it does. Following Christ becomes a burden rather than something that we do out of love and gratitude to our Savior. Something that we do with joy. So they had made it something different, and that's what self-righteous legalism does, doesn't it? It becomes a joyless Christianity. And we begin to add things that go beyond what stands written in God's Word. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, listen to what He says to people who are listening to Him preaching. He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus understood that in his day, the religious leaders had added so much stuff that even God's law, obedience to God's law, had become a huge burden, right? And he said, follow me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says... That this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. See, ultimately, beloved, when we are walking by the Spirit and keeping, um, um, following God's Word out of the right uh, right heart, it doesn't. It isn't about a burden. It's it's a blessing, isn't it? That's what all of God's Word is meant to um, breed in our lives. Doesn't mean that obedience will be easy. It doesn't mean that sometimes obeying will not be hard. It will be very difficult sometimes. But it means that ultimately, God's word is meant to be obeyed so that it might bring him glory and so that we might be blessed. Amen? 
Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had made God's law something very different. Now, thirdly, thirdly, we want to look at the principle of lordship this morning. The principle of lordship. I can imagine that these self-righteous religious leaders were thinking to themselves, what is Jesus? who does Jesus think he is? In fact, that was at the, at the core of the, the anger and the fury of these religious leaders. Who does this guy think that he is? Who does he think he is to forgive, say that he can forgive sins, that he can hang out with tax collectors and sinners, that he can make his disciples, not make his disciples fast when we are all fasting? And now, who does he think he is to allow his disciples to violate the Sabbath? Who does this man think that he is? And Jesus definitively answers that, doesn't he? Look at verse 28. He says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I want to put, take, uh, take this whole passage together because Jesus, first of all, declares his lordship in verse 28, and then he illustrates it in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. I want you to see this. He, first of all, declares his lordship in verse 28. What is it that gives Jesus the right to make pronouncements even about the Sabbath? Namely, he is, the, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he says in verse 28. Son of Man is a title. In verse 28, they're used some 14 times in Mark, primarily by Jesus of himself. And it places emphasis, listen, on his humiliation as a real human being. But also, Son of Man is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Where there, the prophet Daniel, approximately 500 years earlier or so, says that one, like a son of man, appears before the ancient of days. The ancient of days there being God the Father. And this one, like the son of man, receives the kingdom from the ancient of days. He's coronated as king. So in other words, son of man is a reference to the coming Messiah. It's a prophetic, messianic title, son of man, as well. But what the Pharisees are really offended by is the fact that Jesus refers to himself as Lord, even of the Sabbath, right? Dems were fighting words for the Pharisees. They were. Because the only sovereign Lord of the Sabbath was God himself. They understood that. They knew that. And this is precisely what Jesus is claiming to be. He's claiming equality with God in that statement. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says that that the reason the Jews wanted to kill Jesus was because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, that was the central issue. Jesus was claiming equality with God. And so by saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, I am God. I am sovereign Lord of the Sabbath. And in claiming that, Jesus is making some astounding claims. As such, only as as one who is greater than the Sabbath, only he and he alone understands the true intent of of the Sabbath observance. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You know, somebody asked last week, um, because we didn't get a chance to cover this verse, obviously. But they asked the question, should we still practice the Sabbath today? As in the Old Testament, is Sabbath observance still for today? And the answer is no. The answer is no. My brother Tim Carnes did a great job leading us in the Lord's Supper. And he alluded there to even the Lord in the upper room 
that when he invited the disciples to drink of the cup, do you remember what he said about the cup? This is the blood of the covenant, right? The new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, on the one hand, was one who came as an Old Testament person, if you will. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says that he was one that was born under the law. So Jesus observed the Sabbath. But then, by virtue of his death and his resurrection, he initiated or inaugurated the new covenant in his blood, which means his atoning death. And so Jesus began that when he died on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and, and through 20 speaks of the veil of his flesh, his body, by which he has inaugurated a new and living way for us, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated the new covenant, right? He fulfilled the old covenant for us. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Mosaic law. He came to fulfill it. It was good and perfect and profitable. It revealed the character of God and our inadequacy to measure up to God's perfect standard. That's why Jesus had to do it for us. That's what happens even at salvation. His righteousness, his perfect, obedient life, and his atoning death is wrecking to our account at salvation, right? Because we weren't able to do that. And so Jesus inaugurated a new covenant. And so those ceremonial restrictions of the Mosaic law no longer apply to us. Certainly there will always be a reflection of the holy character of God. And even as we've said again and again, an expression ultimately in the Old Testament of love for the Lord and love for one another. But listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Therefore... No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, that is dietary restrictions, or in respect to a festival or a new moon, that is observances of particular days or feasts, or a Sabbath day. Things, these dietary restrictions, these days, the Sabbath, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, literally the body, that is the reality, belongs to Christ. What are shadows? Shadows are only important in that they represent an object or a person, right? That's what those things were. Paul is saying that those things, all of those ceremonial, all those feasts and festivals to be celebrated, the Sabbath even, were shadows, but Jesus is the reality. He is the substance, the fulfillment of those things. So that when Jesus came and died and rose again, he inaugurated a new covenant. Jesus Christ, beloved, is the point. He is the point. Hebrews 3 and 4, in fact, makes the point that those of us who have believed in Christ, who are in him, now we, are, we enter into his rest, into his rest, the rest of Christ. And so notice, the first thing that Jesus does here is that he declares his lordship. In fact, in Matthew 12, 6, in the parallel account, he says, something, something greater than the Sabbath is here, she says to these religious leaders. I am greater than the Sabbath. Secondly, I want you to notice in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus shows or applies his lordship over the Sabbath here in this miracle. Most likely, these two accounts, verses 23 to 28 and 3, 1 through 6, describe two subsequent Sabbaths. But I find it so interesting that Mark brings them together when he records his gospel and, and closely connects them together by a little word that appears only in the Greek and in the New King James Version. How many of you use King James Version here? New King James Version. So you see this. In chapter 3, verse 1, 
The New King James Version reads like this. And he entered the synagogue again. That little word and or Kai connects this text 1 through 6 through the, to the previous text. And especially verse 28, what Jesus says concerning himself as Lord of the Sabbath. So Mark is telling us, here's another controversy over the Sabbath, but it's intricately connected to what Jesus said about himself in verse 28. So here's the illustration, Jesus in verses 1 through 6, showing his lordship over the Sabbath in this particular miracle here. And as we've seen, as was Jesus' custom, he constantly taught in the synagogues, didn't he? And so here's this occasion where our Lord is sitting, um, where our Lord is sitting in in the synagogue, he is potentially ready to teach and here's this man who is in the, who is at this synagogue minding his own business a man who verse 1 describes as a man with a withered hand um, Luke chapter 6 verse 6 Luke is always very um, uh, focused on detail so he says it was the man's right hand and so this man is sitting there at the, in the synagogue he is he has this deformity And he's not wanting to bring attention to himself. Nothing in this text tells us that he, similar to other people who have come to ask for Jesus Jesus to heal them, actually requests for Jesus' help. He doesn't say anything. And amongst the people who are at this synagogue, here are the Pharisees yet again, right? They're not minding their own business. What are they doing according to verse 2? We're told yet again that these Pharisees, and we find them um, stay, named in verse 6, that the Pharisees are there. They're present in the synagogue, and what are they doing? They are watching Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And then Mark adds this little note, so that they might accuse him. There they are. And the tense is they're continually watching him. They're intensely glaring at Jesus. Picture that. These guys are not here, as in the other accounts, because they really want to learn from our Lord. Because they want to see him do another great miracle and just praise God for the great compassion of this Jesus Christ. No. They are there because they want to catch Jesus in violation of the Sabbath. They want to indict him. They want to bring him eventually to their Sanhedrin, their ruling Jewish ruling body, and accuse Jesus and charge him with violation of the Sabbath. That's why they are there. They're suspicious. They have evil intentions against our Lord. They're not there because they love Him. And so notice, there's nothing said thus far in the first couple of verses. You have the Pharisees who are there. You have this man who has a need, who hasn't said anything. He doesn't come to Jesus. You have our Lord. Then you have His disciples, Jesus' disciples who are there, those who are already following Him. And then you have a bunch of other people who are there as well. And these religious leaders, beloved market, they've seen Jesus' pattern, haven't they? What does Jesus do? Jesus preaches and Jesus heals. They know that when there is a need around our Lord, that he will not turn his back on anybody. He's going to help people. He is a man of compassion and of great mercy. They know this. So their evil intentions are very evident in fact, Luke chapter 6, verse 8 says that Jesus knew what they were thinking. Similar to back in chapter 2 and verse 8, where it says that Jesus, uh, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way amongst themselves. Jesus knew the hearts of these individuals. And so he says to the man, if you notice in verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. Get up and come forward. 
The Greek emphasizes there that Jesus summoned this man to stand in the middle of middle so that everyone could take a close look at him. So picture that. All eyes are on this individual. Wouldn't you hate that if you were the center of attention? I mean, nothing in there says that he's, he's the one that's looking for the attention, right? Um, at the Christmas concerts, I met a, a number of new people and a couple of people who were visiting, and they asked me at one point, What's, so where, what, where does your name Kempis originate from? I've never heard that name. Um, and so I gave them kind of the background story and all of that, and they said, man, you, you must have loved having that name growing up. That was so unique. And I told them, actually, I hated it. I hated being named Kempis. At one point, I remember even talking to my aunt who had adopted me, uh, um, asking her if she could rename me Randy. Because <laughs> it seemed like every, every good ath- athlete was named Randy in our school, you know? He's like, you're crazy in Spanish, she said. <clears throat> anyway, I hated my name growing up. You know why I hated my name? Because I grew up in the L.A. public school system. And in elementary school, every year, where you would go into a new class with a new teacher, they would read off this, the, the uh, names. They had their roll sheet, 50 to 60 students in each class. And they would call out all of these common names. Susan, present. Jose, present. Tyrone, present. Jimmy, present. All of these common names. And then they would get to my name. And I was like a back row Baptist. You know, I was all the way to the back with my head down behind the person in front of me. I did not want any attention whatsoever. I hated that. But she would, this teacher would get to my name and say, um, this one is hard. Krimpus? Krimpus? You know, campus? Like a school campus? Son, get up. Why don't you get up and tell us all, what, how do you pronounce your name? I hated that. Who likes to be the center of attention, right? Can you imagine this poor man being brought to the middle of the room and all eyes are upon him? All eyes are attentive upon him. And it wasn't that our Lord Jesus was trying to humiliate this individual at all. That's not what he was doing. Jesus wanted, beloved, listen, this man's condition to be evident to all who were in there. That everybody would see He's not even named. Only the fact that he's got this deformity, this withered hand, either from birth, we don't know, some disease, some accident, we don't know. But Jesus wants everybody to behold this individual. Why? So that perhaps what would be evoked in their hearts would be compassion and mercy, right? But also, take note of this. Jesus calls this man beloved to the center of the room because he's not going to hide what he's about to do. I find that astounding. Jesus is not afraid of the religious leaders. He knows that opposition is is growing more intense. He knows that this is going to to, um, speed up the process of him going to the cross. And yet this is exactly what he is resolute on doing. So he's going to confront the issue head on. And look at what happens in verse 4. He asks them a question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Is it lawful? What does Jesus mean by that? Is it right, according to the law of Moses, to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? What's he calling them to? He's challenging them with their question, with a question to get them to check whether their views, their traditions, their interpretations match with Scripture, right? Is it lawful? He's not talking about their traditions. He's talking about the law of Moses. 
But notice also how he frames the question. You know, the parallel account in Matthew chapter 12 says in Matthew 12, verse 10, that they simply had asked Jesus an initial question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That's how they had asked the question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then Matthew says that they might accuse him. But Jesus reframes the question, right? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? You know what Jesus did? Jesus took it from the legal level to the moral level. Jesus took it, used terms like good or harm, save a life or kill. These religious leaders, beloved, in other words, are focused on the legality. Is there some law, one of, namely their interpretations or traditions, is there something that's going to be broken here in this matter? Is something going to be violated of our rules and traditions? Jesus is focused on the person in front of him. On the fact that this individual has a need. And what's his point? There's a moral responsibility to do good to someone in need, right? At that moment. And to even withhold good from someone in need would be wrong and not keeping with the intent of the law of God. That's what Jesus is getting after there. These individuals were not concerned about the life of, an, of, of a person in front of them. No. This is evident from their question in Matthew 12.10. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That's where they left it. Jesus asks, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? There's a moral responsibility there. Well, notice their response to Jesus' x-ray question, right? In verse 4, notice. But they kept silent. But they kept silent. They weren't going to answer our Lord. They weren't going to answer Him. If they answer no... It's not lawful to do good or to save a life. Then you know how they're going to come across as loveless, careless guys, right? Not only that, but ignorant. But if they answer yes, it's lawful to do good or to save a life, then you know what? They're going to prove Jesus' action right when he heals this man on the Sabbath, right? So they stay silent. Either way they answer, Jesus is proved right. They are wrong and they don't have any grounds to accuse our Lord. Boy, isn't Jesus a master surgeon of people's hearts? He is indeed. So they keep silent. But I love verse 5. Mark's recording of Jesus' real human emotions. Notice in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. You know what our Lord's response was? It was righteous indignation. Righteous indignation and grief. Sadness. Sorrow. Why? Because not, not only that these individuals had they dismissed or disvalidated the very word of God, but listen, they were men who did not have love, who did not have compassion, who were not merciful to this individual. They had missed the whole intent of God's word. By the way, this is not sinful anger from our Lord. Our Lord never, ever, ever sinned. He was blameless. If He would have sinned, He would not have qualified to go to the cross and pay for our sins as the perfect spotless Lamb, right? Jesus was the only man who ever walked on the face of this planet who it could be said of that any time He showed anger, and this is the first mention, by the way, of, of this kind of anger in the, in the Gospels from, of Jesus, any time that he expressed any emotion, it was pure and consistent with his holy nature. 
And so Jesus is righteously angry here. And that anger is mixed with deep grief. Why? At the hardness of their hearts. At the hardness of their hearts. Because they were unloving and unmerciful people. Beloved, listen, as we look at even our society around us, just as a side note, and the sin that is so rampant in our country and all over the world, I think we can learn something from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here, right? To have this sense of righteous indignation, not at the fact that people are sinning against us, but at the fact that people are living as an affront to our holy God, our Heavenly Father. And not only that, but you know what else? We should be filled with sorrow and sadness as we see the rebellion around us. We should. And we should be driven to pray for people, for people's hearts in this society. I told you last week this, that when our man-made rules and structures, even with some biblical warrant, if they have some biblical warrant in areas of personal conviction or preference, consistently keep us from serving God and loving other people, it's time for us to reevaluate, right? I think that's something that we learn from this passage as Jesus is exposing these, these religious leaders. These individuals had so elevated their personal interpretations and preferences above God's word that, listen, they had failed to love God and love other people as God intended. And Jesus shows them here his lordship over the Sabbath, and he shows them, he models for them what their response should have been to individuals like these. Look at verse 5. He says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. As always, the healing is immediate and complete, inside and out, and with fullness of authority and publicly. Jesus does this so that everybody could see, so that everybody could see. You know what was so ironic about Jesus' healing? That he never, he just did it by the word of his power, by mere words. What's ironic about all of this is that he didn't do any work, right? Just spoke. They couldn't accuse him of laboring, if you will. He just spoke. And so this becomes the visible application of Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath. What was their response? Notice, you would think that after seeing this, these guys would come around. Wow, what a compassionate man Jesus is. We ought to learn from him. The exact opposite happens, doesn't it? Luke chapter 6, verse 11 says that they were filled with rage. The idea there is that they were like madmen beside themselves. They had lost all control of their emotions. They lost their senses. And look at verse 6 of Mark 3. It tells us that they went out and immediately began conspiring or plotting with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. They wanted to eliminate him. They wanted to kill him. This is what Mark tells us that we need to understand. Notice they conspired with the Herodians. Who are those guys in verse 6? Well, they were the exact opposite of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders. Listen, the, the Herodians were the minority secular Jewish party of the day. They were those who were loyal to the Herodians and they kissed up to Rome. That's who these guys were. The Pharisees were the complete opposite. They were the, the Jewish purists who, who pushed for separation from Rome and the culture. And even in this particular instance, they so much hate Jesus and they're so against Jesus that they come together for one common goal, and that was to destroy our Lord. They don't ever get along. And yet constantly you see that the Pharisees are opportunists, aren't they? 
If anybody locks arms with them to accomplish their wicked um, um, aim to kill Jesus, they're going to lock arms with whoever. And that's what they do here. The Herodians and the Pharisees get together and they want to kill Jesus. But as we, we're going to see next week in verse 7, or the, or the next time that we're in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' hour had not come, so he retreats, doesn't he? Beloved, what are some takeaways? What are some takeaways from this text? I think for those of us in here, those of you who are not Christians, the message of the Gospel of Mark again and again is that as you behold Jesus Christ, who he is and that he is the only hope for humanity who went to the cross to die for sinners, the main application for you as a non-Christian is that you would put your trust in him. You would put your trust in him alone. See, the religious leaders had put their trust in a religion of works that consisted of rigid interpretation, added rules, and they judged other people in accordance with those rules. Maybe we don't have a... a we're, not, we're not around apostate Judaism today. What kinds of things do we tend to put our trust in? We tend to put our trust in on our inherent goodness, that there's something good in us whereby God will accept us. And the Bible says that there's nothing good in you. That every single one of us are sinners and there is none who is righteous here on this earth. None of us measure up to God's perfect standard of holiness. But we put our trust in our inherent goodness, in our religious practices, in our church going, and in our giving, and in all of those things. But we've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. None of those things can save you. None of those things can. People put their trust in their opinions about religion and their philosophies and their experiences and the lies that pleasure and money and success and all of those things will somehow gain you some happiness beyond this life. It will not. So the first application for you as a non-believer is this. As you behold this Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, are you beholding him in such a way that you've come to truly cherish and treasure him as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you confessed Him as Lord? That's one application for you as a non-believer. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. What about for us who are believers? I don't know about you, but the more that I interact with the Gospel of Mark and we behold our precious Savior, the more that my faith is strengthened. In a twofold way. One, because I see the resolve of our Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross to purchase salvation for me as a wicked sinner. Do you remember the primary audience to whom Mark writes? Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians living in the mid to late 60s where there were already the beginning signs of persecution. And those people needed to, needed to be comforted and encouraged by a document like this, a historical document concerning Jesus Christ. And so here they are reading this, and they're seeing Mark recording these conflicts that their Savior went through. Jesus could have avoided those conflicts, but instead, what did he do? He confronted them. And he was resolute on going all the way to the cross to die for sins. What great comfort those believers must have had, beloved, and what great comfort we should have today. That as we see our Lord confronting people who were opposing him, and he was living in a wicked society who didn't believe in him, 
who weren't committed to the truth. Even um, um, Judaism wasn't committed to sola scriptura, if you will, scripture alone. Jesus confronted those issues. We're living in the same kind of society, aren't we? In a day and age where the truth is, is um, opposed, where people want to pretend that God is silent. And what comfort to us to see how our Lord Jesus Christ, he confronted the uh, people who opposed him. And he was resolute on going to the cross. The other thing that encourages my faith in the Gospel of Mark is this. It is the preeminence of Christ over everything. Have you noticed how everywhere that Jesus, wherever Jesus is, he's greater, he is the focal point. I mean, the Gospel of Mark opens that way. The Gospel of Mark opens with the title statement, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? The one who was, who was foretold. And then John the Baptist um, baptizes him. And the Father affirms him, and the Spirit of God comes upon him. Jesus is the focal point in the conflicts. Why is Jesus able to forgive sins? Because he is equal to God. He is able to forgive sins. Why is Jesus able to feast with his disciples and not fast at that moment? Because he is the bridegroom, and if they had their focus upon him, they wouldn't be fasting, these people. Why is Jesus... His disciples able to partake of the Sabbath? Well, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he understood the true intent of the Sabbath, that it was for the benefit of men. Wherever in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is proclaimed as preeminent, as supreme. And I guess the way that this speaks to me as a Christian is this. In everything in my life, beloved, as a believer, my aim is to exalt Christ on this earth. That's what your aim is. The root problem of mankind, beloved, that Jesus has redeemed us from is the problem in our hearts of self-exaltation. That is our problem in our hearts. When we are redeemed and the Spirit of God does that work in our hearts, we cease to be self-idolaters and now we live to make much of Jesus Christ and to put Jesus on display, right? If we learn anything from the Gospel of Mark is that a true follower of Jesus Christ makes Jesus the focal point. He is the bridegroom. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is going to be the one who's going to go to the cross and three days later rise again for sinners that you and I, when we repent and believe in Him, we will be with Him in a new heavens and a new earth, right? Jesus is to be exalted and made much of. It strengthens our faith. To know that if we are following the Lord, we are following He who is the exalted Jesus Christ. He has the final word in our lives, doesn't He? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Father, thank You for sending Your Son into the world. Thank You that He is Lord of all. That You, the Father, have raised Him from the dead and declared Him Lord of all. Help us to be people who... Lord, trust in Him, who make much of Him on this earth in light of the fact that He has saved us. Father, I pray for those who are not Christians this morning. I pray that as we continue to work through the Gospel of Mark, that they would not just see Jesus as some historical figure, as somebody in whom they can just believe intellectually, but that they would truly come to see Him as Lord and the one that can save them from their sins. Father, may they put their trust in Him and Him alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.